Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. Our guest this week is Caitlin Pontrella. Caitlin is the executive director of Parkour Visions, and those who've been following my work for a while will know that I helped co-found Parkour Visions back in 2006 and then starting classes in 2008. So I'm really excited to have Caitlin in town and helping to lead that organization. It's really good to kind of have her bring our expertise in. So prior to uh, coming to Parkour Visions, she helped run a company in uh, New York called The Movement Creative. And The Movement Creative was a parkour teaching organization, but it was a particularly play-focused parkour teaching organization. And Caitlin has an enduring interest in play research. And in addition to that, she is an architect and has a real interesting eye towards design and how it impacts the way that people play with spaces. So one of the reasons that Kaylin wanted to have this chat with me and, and vice versa was to talk about some of the issues around um, sex and gender in the parkour community because it's a community that is predominantly male. So a lot of the beginning of the conversation revolves around that. And then the second half of the conversation is focused on play and design and how that impacts things. So if those topics are interest, uh, interesting to you, I think this is a very enlightening conversation. I was really happy to get Caitlin on the podcast and enjoyed my chance to speak with her. Without further ado, I present Caitlin Pantrella. I had a, a student at one of my workshops who, who, uh, who had gotten up, uh, up ahead of the part of the group that I was in. So I came up and she was looking at a, a jump that was maybe about seven feet across. Uh, from one rock to another over uh, a stream right before it turned into a waterfall. Mm -hmm. And there was another one of the, uh, of the students who's also a teacher who's helping encourage her. So I stepped up and kind of took the other side and was spotting her. And I told her, uh, you know, I didn't want her to feel too much pressure because she was getting that message, you can do this, you can do this, which I felt sure. like was a little too much like, you know, maybe you need to do this. So first I told her, you don't have to do this, but I know that you can do it, that this distance is, is, is totally doable for you. Mm -hmm. And if you do it, we're here to support you and you know we'll make sure you're safe. And so she asked me, can I do it? And and can I cry while I'm doing it? Yeah. I'm doing it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, and so she did and she, she jumped and she cried and she was crying and laughing afterwards. You know? yeah. And we kind of had this conversation about how like that's, that's your process, you know, yeah, your yeah. process, and, and it's a beautiful thing, right? If it's, if sure, it's you, experience moving, an yeah. intense, you experience an intense emotion, people process their intense emotions very yeah. differently. I mean, this is... Yeah, and so I found that, that uh, 
it's very easy, I think, when you have a certain type of mind to look at someone else's expression of their their mental state, yeah, and kind of be like, well, that's stupid, or you know, I don't, why, why would you cry, like, yeah, you know, yeah, and, and that's never really helpful. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's really about building empathy in our communities, and yeah. the more you can expose people to different kinds of people and their processes, mm -hmm. and uh, have conversation around it, right? I think the biggest thing yeah. is like, let's talk about each other's experiences, and also give permission for everyone to have the experience they need to have. Yeah. And that's like stepping outside of uh, gender restrictions or uh, societal expectations of whether or not you can show emotion, whether or not like maybe you do need to be supported instead of like name called mm -hmm. um but to be able to ask for what you like she said ask for what you yeah. need to do and then like share that experience as a model to other people as hey this person presses it this way if you also like here's someone you can identify with yeah um but there's a lack of dialogue i think sometimes in our communities around differences of experience yeah well it's a different th thing it's a, there's a there's a lot of dialogue about in our culture about kind of uh <clears throat> what it all means around sex and gender sure um but it seems like there's a lot of there's a lot of conflict without a lot of like uh, willingness to kind of um, have empathy, I guess, and yeah. and and to try and there's a difficult. It feels like there's a difficult balance between. It seems really useful for me as a coach personally mm -hmm. to recognize that that women on average have different men, uh, minds than men, right? That they tend to. Um, they tend to express themselves differently, they tend to experience things differently. And that having a, a general heuristic about how, how a woman might respond helps me engage at the first level with an individual sure. woman. And then once I know her better, sure. I start to recognize, okay, I flesh out the individual and then it's the, sure. the, the fact that she's one gender or another, right. that actually ceases to matter because you know the individual. But at the first step, having that. That's sure. Script. I mean, just yeah. I mean, having a script to engage with anyone, right? Is I mean, yeah. having an awareness of uh, stereotypes and uh, generalizations. They exist for a reason because they've existed on some scale or another, right? Yeah. Um, and for so many coaches, I think you know we talk about like a progressive experience, creating movement for all, and how everyone can take their own path in mm -hmm. their practice. That also means that they have their own experience of their practice emotionally, physically, yeah. um, and. Uh, don't just practice scaling up and scaling down your physical progressions, but also the way you scale up and scale down, the way you give people permission to have emotional experiences, right? You know, so. Yeah, the. I, recognize, recognize the spectrum of ability, right? If you help someone to be a beginner and an advanced athlete, uh, same thing, a beginner and advanced in terms of managing their emotion. I also see people who have very strong emotional reactions as people who are not used to experiencing or practicing working under those emotions very often, which is why parkour is pretty awesome because yeah. you get to have a, a frequent practice space. So I'm curious, like, if the student of yours, you know, a year or two from now, uh, would have such an emotional reaction facing a similar challenge as she becomes more adept at navigating her own kind of emotional response to a circumstance or to her fear or to her experience and movement. She sent me a message and said that like she's had like she she returns to that moment mm -hmm. repeatedly because that like permission to have her emotional process yeah. and to be able to like have a positive um a positive uh what's the word i'm looking for uh well a positive conclusion anyways yeah, to, yeah. to the uh, to the experience is really huge and i had another student it was really interesting she um she sprained her ankle okay she so she did a year of online training with me cool and then she came to return the source which is a big seminar of the year and it cost the most 
and she uh, she sprained her ankle on the second day of the third day. So she's there for a week, and now she like can't participate in most of the drills for like two days. Mm -hmm. And and I kept asking her like, are, you know, are you how are you doing? Are you okay? And she's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And because I didn't want to draw attention to her right. and like try to dig more deeply into it, so it wasn't until like maybe the fourth night that I was able to kind of uh, step uh, like step aside with her. Like right. I found her sitting by herself and sat down next to her and said, you know, okay, how how is this going for you? You know, mm -hmm. with the sprained ankle, and she um, she was like, I'm fine first, and I was like, you know, it's okay if you're not fine. Like you, you spent a lot of money and you've been preparing for this for a year and you've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. And like it's hard to to lose out on those experiences and to not be part of the group, and then it was yeah like, everything came yeah out. totally. And I think so. That, I think that what you do like giving people permission uh, to acknowledge their feelings. Yeah. I mean, this is something you can just do with women, but also with men. I'm sure yeah, lots absolutely. of men also feel this, and don't and even more so where like women, if you give them, I think just for me personally, I have to talk about my experience. If I'm given a little bit of an invitation mm -hmm. to share how I feel in a, meaning, in a way that's yeah. meaningful, I feel like you actually will hear what I have to say and value it. Yeah. You know, I think, this was saying a second ago before we were off camera, was um, I have a lot of difficulty personally expressing emotion um, in, in social spaces because I'm really afraid of judgment. You know, there is the stereotype of women being crazy and emotional and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so if I express emotion, I'm afraid of getting uh, painted as incompetent or uh, unstable, and um, I, for that reason, I bottle a lot of things up, or I manage them to a higher level, uh, because I, again, don't want to be judged. So I think for women, if, if they hear reflected back to themselves, the inner narrative that you gave her, right, yeah. she's now, she's like, okay, he actually understands my experience. He's not going to judge me, because he just created, he painted me as a rational person. It's a rational <laughs> response to the circumstance. But I think that that's, that's the product of it, right, in so many places, emotions painted as this thing that is crazy and unstable and uh, very feminine and whatever it is right and like i hate this so <laughs> much because i'm not crazy and i'm not this i just i'm allowed to be sad or frustrated or like exuberant whatever it is i can have these emotions and i, I want to be free with them but then yeah. you think suddenly i'm untrustworthy because i have them but you're untrustworthy <laughs> because you're hiding them <laughs> No, this is I. This feels very rich to me because I feel like this is one of the places where, um, where there's a lot of, of potential gain in understanding the way other people's minds are, and also the way that our own minds are that may be less, less obvious to us. So. It's there. There's a. It seems like the politically correct thing is to believe that that basically the minds of men and women are not different. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is that because most of the sort of realms of our culture that everyone's trying to, to move into were initially created for and dominated by men, mm -hmm. we've, we've somehow adopted the frame that the male base characteristic is correct. Sure. And so when we say women are, are exactly the same as men, what we're actually saying is we expect women to, to be exactly like men. Right. And yeah. if that's not the case, then all of a sudden we don't have, we don't, we're not respecting the value that those differences offer, totally. or or giving or or creating a space that's actually um, that's actually uh, welcoming, mm -hmm. that's actually valuable. So there's so that's really interesting. I really like to get your experience on that. I also wanted to say something that I think is really important, which is that I think it's really useful for men to rep, to learn from women about emotions because I think 
because emotion tends to be a little bit more on the surface for women, they tend to develop emotional literacy more easily. Yeah, absolutely. So, social emotional literacy, absolutely. Well, I think um, I can't speak to biology. It's yeah. not my background, yeah. right? But I can speak to like an examination of culture and society. I think mm. women and men are just raised differently to yeah. be like, you know, how a mother might treat his, her son versus her daughter in terms of giving her permission to have emotions, right? So I, I wonder even if it's just a, a cultural upbringing that's so deeply embedded in society that you know, women aren't able to have intimate personal relationships with lots of people, whereas men, less so. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know, feel I, like I can speak to that because yeah, yeah. I grew up in a hippie community, mm -hmm. so like there was a very strong desire to kind of make sure that emotion was open to everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and I would say I ended up like very hyper-masculine despite that. Yeah. And then I actually feel like a lot of cultural pressure growing up in a, in a liberal uh, left-wing kind of West Coast environment to be more emotional and more sensitive. And it's yeah. like kind of like, it's hard to just be male. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a tough life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, there are definitely yeah. aspects for yeah. being both genders. I don't want to uh, yeah. in any way suggest that I'm diminishing the no, male experience. So, so... And then what we do know is that, um, on average, the the gaps between personality characteristics are largest in the countries that have gone the furthest towards gender equality. So if we look at Sweden, we'll find that like the difference in risk taking between men and women is higher mm, than in the other. In in uh, in say Iran, where they have much more strong uh, strict gender roles. So uh, so certainly there's 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 both of these elements, but wh wherever they arise from, mm -hmm. if you're if you're working with people who have a uh, a different sort of type of mind, and mm -hmm. they're they're trying to to um, we're trying to make the experience as valuable for the people who come into the community as possible, sure, and make it as welcoming as possible. Having a way of understanding those differences yeah. and uh, permission to be the type of person you are mm -hmm. and respect for those differences. Mm -hmm. Those all seem like fundamental to yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, there's cultivating. a degree of emotional intelligence, right? This is something yeah. that you, like, schools don't teach it because it's really a complex thing to teach someone emotional mm -hmm. intelligence or social intelligence or charisma even, like these, mm -hmm. these ideas of how to be socially adept. Um, I think from my experience as a woman, I've had a lot of opportunity to experiment with uh, my interactions with people and try on different personas and different responses and yeah. uh, different scripts uh, within my community because as a woman I have a lot more permission to have I guess like social blunders yeah. I don't know if that's the right word for it but like I can blunder through something with the opposite <laughs> sex and I, I pretty much don't get any judgment for it a yeah. lot of times mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm curious if that might be a contributor but I think the biggest thing is, again, uh, learning about emotional intelligence, uh, building empathy, and a lot of this can just be exposure to different types of people, working with different types of people. I think your approach of asking questions and being being like, a, being like uh, present to someone's distinctly different experience of the state, like, you know, yeah. and not passing judgment. I think creating permission, uh, creating space like, where that has a lot of permission and doesn't have any judgment. Uh, yeah. You know, we all talk about you know, everyone finding and everyone finding their own path, and everyone everyone has their own movement. But that's not often coming through in our language and in our like socialization with other groups. You know, you see people who only uh, hang out with other people who move like really, really well, and not affiliate with or not talk with or create relationships with people who are beginning or new, which has a suggestion of hierarchy there in mm -hmm. terms of value as a person. Um, 
but even like again in language I remember something I got called someone out on recently was like uh, she said oh I couldn't even you know I remember back when I started I couldn't even do a Kong which yeah. is like a, a volley whatever mm -hmm. um, and I was like now you're placing it that's a value statement inherently saying like if you can't do a Kong like you're shitty and that's this and that and like it's just like there are plenty of people who do parkour especially mm -hmm. as we, we start to reach older and older populations who will never do a Kong and they will do parkour and they will have value in our community we have to be very cognizant of how the kind of subtext of our language is going to impact our students and our, our fellow practitioners. I think that's where a lot of it comes in. Maybe women are a little more tuned into that subtext because we have to constantly be seeking it out. I mean, I find that I'm constantly looking for people's subtext in their, in their language and their communication yeah. with me. Um, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how are you judging me with what you're saying right yeah. now? Yeah, interesting. Um, so... Uh, I don't want to kind of silo you into being the person who talks about oh, tell about you gender. Oh, women's okay. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess all I have to offer is value. Uh, so I wanted to to just kind of uh, to leave that topic for the moment sure, yeah. and go into one of your big interests has been uh, play and play yeah. theory, which is something that we share. Yeah. And you you crafted some a kind of very specific approach to teaching outdoor parkour classes to. Sure. Uh, from what I understand, a very diverse population, right? Yeah. People of uh, different kind of ethnic groups, people of different ages, people of different ability levels. Mm -hmm. and, and I wanted to, to hear you talk about kind of how you use play as a way to kind of, I um, know your understanding of play as a way to to make parkour that much more approachable for people mm -hmm. and more effective for their training. Sure. Um, so I've talked about this once or twice with a few people, and the, the, the two models I have right now are... Like, there are two approaches to teaching right now that I think parkour is uh, performance-oriented and play-oriented. Mm -hmm. So performance-oriented is a class where you might go to and it's achieving how to how to do this skill correctly, you know, uh, improve uh, your physical fitness in terms of, like, I can do one more push that I did last time. Um, so very much about physical goals um, and techniques and your personal experience, uh, intrinsic, intrinsic, uh, that's not the word really, but uh, inward-looking yeah. experience uh, about, about you, right? Yeah, yeah versus play being about us and the we and a, a social experience um, and about having fun mm -hmm. where the metric of success is laughter and you know whether or not you walk away and you call that person up to hang out again and um, looking at whether or not you're trying to train athletes or you're trying to build a community. I'm not saying they can't overlap, mm -hmm. but that there is a difference in approach and that what you might integrate here is very different than what you might do here. So like instead of using drills, I'm going to find a game. Um, and, you know, instead of doing like, uh, a regimented warm-up we're going to do like some sort of activity where you're partnering up and and talking to someone else and solving a problem or a puzzle um, yeah. but basically a lot of things I did with the movement creative was very much about uh, looking at um, we had lots of talks about how do we essentially gamify or playify our classes from like yeah. start to, to start to end and uh, while there might be individualized practice there's maybe a group goal so we're all going to do a thousand jumps together and you're in them all. But we're all working this collective goal while still doing our individual thing. And just contextualizing every activity within the group or within the community. And it's never just about now you're going to go work on your jump over there instead of whatever it is. So it's, we're working on this together somehow. Mm -hmm. So so can you give us... So how do you feel like that um, that impacted the... 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 the, the experience of the student? Mm-hmm. The progression of the student and then the uh, kind of like the business aspect of, of being able to retain students 
sure. Oh, okay. I need to write this down. Uh, <laughs> so three questions. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, a play-based versus a performance-based approach. How does that affect like the long-term kind of? Uh, well, how does it affect this experience of the f uh, student first? Sure, sure. Second, how does it affect their their progression in the art? And then third, like as a business person, how can how what will this do for someone trying to sure. put on their classes? I think so. I think when you go more towards the the play space, uh, the play approach is there's more of an attention to the social emotional experience of the individual. Yeah. Um, so that's why you're able to bring in so many diversely different people together because you're able to set aside a lot of their hesitations. And so, so I do a lot of I'm very interested in studying new students, the new student experience, and why people do or do not come back. Um, and parkour, and this ties into the answer to all three of those questions, is especially businesses. A new a new person coming into parkour, you know, parkour is very scary. Uh, from the outside, it looks like this is a crazy thing. So so you already get you get to class, and on top of that, if you're told to do all these crazy things in front of other people, even just crawling around, maneuvers that you're not doing in your day to day life, right? So you're outside your comfort zone. Um, and if you can create, if you can lower the uh, the social risk of participating, uh, people are more willing to engage. It frees up bandwidth to engage physically. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's one one benefit in terms of like st like being able to advance your own movement is that you when you're in a more socially positive and lower risk space, you're more willing to engage with physical risk because the social risk is less. Yeah, um, In terms of like, you know, the class. So the client experience is very much more about uh, becoming friends with the people you're working with. Um, and hopefully creating a space where they're going to train outside of your class time uh, and be become more uh, committed to what they're doing and then again stay longer with the community and the group. So the business is not a business, it's a community. Yeah. It's a business and a community. Mm -hmm. Versus a class, a performance class is about achievement of skills. So once you achieve the skill, what happens? So this is what I used to say, like, critique gyms on is you have a level system, level one, level two, mm -hmm. level three. Okay, what happens when I get to level three? Uh, I guess yeah. I'm done. I go find something new. I find the next new thing. Yeah. Um, versus a community, there's no leveling out, right? Mm -hmm. There's just a, a new way, something new every week that your coach brings, a new experience, a new game, um, and you're there because of the people, not just because you're trying to achieve the black belt. And not that that's the only thing that keeps yeah, up, yeah. but there's like a difference again in mentality and approach. And there's a lot of things I want to dig into there. And I know. There's so many, <laughs> and then, yeah, there's just, I, it's really hard to even talk about something because I put like yeah. trail away to all the things I want to say, and it's hard on the spot. So. <laughs> This, this this reminds me, and I've told this story a few times, uh, of a conversation I had with Brandy, who's the head mm -hmm. coach, at, at, or one of the coaches at yeah. Parkour Visions. Um, uh, I was very much a performance-oriented coach. I came from gymnastics, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then my theory was basically, if I create the most effective progressions for mm -hmm. students, then they will uh, then they will continue to come back, because they'll get better. And getting better yeah. is fun. Yeah. And, uh, and that worked very well for young male talented students mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't have as good of a I didn't tend to like my retention rates for higher level classes were extremely high my retention rates for lower level classes were not that great have we uh, just to interrupt you know, this isn't derail you you know in that book uh, play yeah uh, by Stuart Brown mm -hmm. he references a runner's world article which I've never been able to find 
about the four types of players, the enthusiast, okay. the yeah. socializer, the competitor, and the athlete, mm-hmm. or the exerciser. Yeah. Um, I think like, this is what this is really getting at. And I look at, like, mm-hmm. it's also, like, player, there's a word for it in, like, when you look at marketing and segmentation. But he basically breaks it to, to, to this, but this is such a good way to look at people who do parkour. Yeah. Um, and, like, uh, of those four types, I think the smallest, like, the smallest group is the competitor. People yeah. who are doing this purely because they need to compete. Like, if there was no competition, they would not be there. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that, uh, oh, God, there's so much I can say in the context. So you have the four types, right? Uh, performance-based models really speak to exercisers and competitors. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that exercisers eventually achieve their goals and they leave. And competitors need to keep finding more people to compete with or keep upping the level of whatever and the, again if people are leaving they're not staying to get better and it's a smaller and smaller and smaller niche group to be a part of it's also more elitist less inclusive um and then socializers and enthusiast people who do it because they want to they, they would not do it if they did not have a social experience or they would not do it because they they need to be doing this thing yeah they love they do it at the level they're do, doing it so that's you, very much you call that enthusiasts 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 yeah, yeah. Enthusiast, yeah you do it because you love doing it under yeah. any context but as long as you're doing the thing you don't care how you're doing it yeah. Um, I think that that's like what play-based models or community-based models and, and really strong business models, things that I think are really sustainable for talking about businesses that are talking to clients. You want to build a business that's speaking, that's very much on the social, the socializer end and the uh, enthusiast end because those people create communities, they stay together, they grow, um, it's non less, less, less exclusive. Mm-hmm. And these two other groups can exist within that, but the, I find that socializers and enthusiasts have a lot more difficulty coming into like performance based where you're appealing to exercisers and competitors because mm-hmm. what they need is not is harder to satisfy than vice versa. It's interesting. I I think that's a really nice schema to think about some of the uh, to think about some, uh, these things and the, the idea of, of emphasizing that that social and enthusiastic aspect of it uh, is really powerful. I, I think that um, I'm, I'm curious if these are really in conflict. I look at something like CrossFit, and CrossFit has grown so explosively. Yeah, exactly. And what it seems like to me that CrossFit has done really well is mm-hmm. um, it's com- it, it has a community aspect because mm-hmm. uh, everybody does it at the same time together. And mm-hmm. this is a huge sort of uh, benefit that you don't get from going to Gold's Gym. Mm-hmm. And then there's this weird thing that happens where suffering together yeah, yeah, totally. is yeah. bonding yeah. and people like that bond we'll get to the, military, the yeah. sacrifice, <laughs> right? um, and then the last totally. thing is, is, the, is the competition mm-hmm. and one of the things that I've found really interesting in my own work is that I find that almost everybody really enjoys competition yeah provided that they have 30% chance of winning <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> or yeah <laughs> provided that they feel safe and have a sufficient uh, chance of, uh, yeah. of success yeah totally. right? it's like competition is great as long as there's, a, as long as I'm not gonna lose every damn time. Actually, I think CrossFit is really interesting to look at, and a good comparison and a question as to why can't parkour follow that model, for example, mm-hmm. because you know why can't we create a space that's more about competition and challenge, uh, but still be inclusive? And honestly, the only thing that always comes up for me constantly is the price point. To participate in CrossFit, you have to have a lot of money a lot of times. It's <laughs> just very expensive. But that being said, like also classes are very small. So I keep class size, like, uh, from my experience, I did CrossFit a little bit. Um, yeah. I never had a class exceeding eight people. Really? I got to know my class, and we always had the same training day. And, you know, I can see totally, and there's a culture of training each other on, yeah. and very similar to parkour. 
but I, I wonder if it's a price point difference and also uh, again parkour is so niche it's yeah. still like you're lifting but weights and this looks like exercise this does not necessarily yeah. and there's a, a you have to even appeal to a larger group of people because yeah. I mean CrossFit's just closer to what people expect yeah right? more willing to engage yeah. lower threshold of you know, everyone knows they need to exercise, and CrossFit's a form of exercise, whereas mm -hmm. parkour is a way to get exercise, but that's... Yeah. But, you know. It also doesn't feel like exercise. I don't know if, like, this is also something I talk about a lot with newcomers, too, is they love this sport, but they don't feel like they're exercising. Like, they don't, like... I leave a soul cycle class, and mm -hmm. I'm fucking drip. This is why, yeah. by the way, I think soul cycle is, like, like a raging, like, explosive brand, because you leave the class feeling like you really worked. Whether or not you did, yeah, yeah. you're dripping sweat. That place was hot, you did your thing. Same with CrossFit, you feel like you did something because like you probably sweat a lot, you're lifting these heavy weights, but in parkour, you might spend all class working on one jump and like maybe achieve it two or three times. And maybe you don't break a sweat because it's 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 parkour to me is so much more about the emotional and social training than it is about the physical. The physical is a means to the social emotional like development, the the experiencing fear and becoming adept at working through intense emotion under strenuous circumstances, right? Like, you don't get that in CrossFit so much. You don't get that in other sports. Like, there's such a, it's so much less, again, so much less about the physical and more about this other aspect. That's which is also why I think parkour can't necessarily, like, should be looking towards socialized enthusiasts because competitors and exercisers could have a lot more difficulty tapping into the inherent value of what parkour brings because it takes longer to make the connection of the physical to mm -hmm. their immediate goals. Yeah, there's the, the, I tell people sometimes who are starting my stuff that it, it's going to take a little while before you're going to be able to actually work out with it. Yeah. Because the technical demands are so hard initially that mm -hmm. you can't, you can't access those exactly. kind of like higher threshold metabolic states and, yeah. and muscular states because you just don't, you just don't know what you're doing with your body. So you can't mm -hmm. push your body hard. So you're more limited by that. And people are, what is it called? Uh... Immediate, gratif immediate gratification is that what yeah, it is? Yeah. They're they're short they're short like short term thinking. So if they're yeah. not feeling like they're getting the results, and a lot of times people why do people seek out uh, new exercise regimes, new movement programs? They have either some sort of like fitness goal they're trying to achieve, or they're looking for a community, or but usually it's fitness goal, right? It's, yeah. I want to get more active, so find you get more active. And if you're not helping me be more active, or I don't feel like I'm getting my goals accomplished. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we well our model is sort of. Uh, it's all about exercise right now. That's what mm -hmm. that's what movement's about. Uh, or yeah, yeah. People. I mean, yeah. there's there's yeah. some very strange things about our, our kind of like world model around what movement is. I yeah, mean, the, the, or the understanding of what movement is. Yeah. yeah. The best example of it is that uh, there was a I think it was a Planet Fitness in Hollywood that had an escalator that led to the uh, cardio amazing. room. So. People don't even recognize that, like, the movement that you get going up and down stairs contributes to your overall um, yeah. exercise profile. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, because yeah, we, yeah. we conceptualize it this little box of the thing that I do for 45 minutes at the gym. Yeah, exactly. Or an hour at the gym. Yeah. And, uh, and so CrossFit has an advantage over parkour in that it looks more like what people expect it to look like. Parkour is about emotional, uh, emotional and social fitness as much as physical fitness. Yeah. And uh, I advocate for people trying parkour because it creates a space that's slightly suspended from reality. Right? There's not 
there's no real repercussion to take risk in this space aside from the physical. I mean, <laughs> there's the physical repercussion, yeah. but I mean, you know, in your day to life, for example, you can't take a risk at your job or in, yeah. in your relationship a lot of times because there are big repercussions. And it's hard sometimes to even uh, work through your emotions around a risk that you might need to take uh, because you're not used to doing, you're not adept to doing, you don't have any practice. And so what parkour does is it provides you a, a, a easily accessible regular space to practice your ability to interface with your emotions, to uh, assess risk, understand understand the variables and the factors and make a, a decision. You know, you're learning to assess whether or not it is an acceptable or an unacceptable risk to take. And you get better at the things you practice. So to me, parkour is really this uh, this deep practice of understanding yourself through physical challenge. Um, it's a lesson that you can take as you get better here. It will start showing up in other areas of your life. You know, I really do like to credit many ways my practice of parkour giving me the ability to leave my career in architecture, yeah. pick up and move across country and, you know, join an organization that wasn't doing so well to try to turn it around. And, you know, these are huge risks that I think in my life, had I not had my experiences through parkour, my practice in parkour and the regular interface and experience with risk and fear and anxiety and having to take action while experiencing those, um, that, that, that to me is, you don't get that from CrossFit. You don't get that from soccer. It's, you know, this is on me to make a decision about myself and understand my circumstances and the courage to take a leap as yeah. more, um, you know, metaphorically. The skill. I mean, it's, yeah. it's risk. Navigating risk is a skill and people think it's like, oh, this person just is an adrenaline junkie or this, you know, they just whatever. But it's just like, no, like I actually, I practice taking risk like every day, in fact. And that's why I'm good at it. That's why when it matters in my life, I can do it and I can do it well, or I can do it without too many repercussions or general accuracy yeah. of expected outcome because I, I know how to like calm my emotions, be present to what I need to do, assess, assess the circumstances, assess myself and make the best decision for myself. Whether it is to take the jump or to walk away today, to move across the country or not, to mm -hmm. stay with my partner, to leave him, whatever it is, um, that's a have kids, not have kids, I don't know. Yeah. What else are big risks in our lives? Like, yeah, the, um, I, I like to think of movement practice as a laboratory for character. Yeah. And I practice, you know, weightlifting, I practice parkour, I practice martial arts. And the thing that I think that, that parkour kind of uniquely offers is an ability to kind of like really take a microscope to your experience of fear. Yeah. Right? You experience fear in martial arts, um, but you don't have time to study it really. Mm -hmm. Like it's happening and you're, you're reacting and there's something really valuable to that. Mm -hmm. Like I have an enormous respect for people who get in the ring. You know, I did my first jujitsu competition recently. It was a mm -hmm. really interesting thing. But, but when I look at a jump that's, that's 20 feet up and and I have to kind of like go through a process, I get to slow, I, it's higher resolution. That's one way of thinking about it. I mm -hmm. can get a higher resolution picture of what my emotional response to these things yeah, is totally. and how I tweak that and, and become a person who, who can overcome that and who can, who can yeah, exactly. face down the fear. Well, I think, so everyone, if you feel stress, stress is a fear response. Yeah. You know, you're stressing me a deadline because you're afraid of not meeting the deadline. Um, so I think recognizing people sometimes don't realize how much fear they face every day. So much of human experience is fear. You know, fear of going outside, fear of the weather, fear of getting wet when you're like going to work, even on a micro level and a macro level, right? Like we experience a wide spectrum of fear and it manifests in different ways. And uh, we are given very few opportunities in any area of our life to practice our fear response. 
and it's sometimes hard to sell sell the practice of parkour as the practice of like what risk management or uh, fear tolerance. Uh, that that's what I was saying. Like it's, it's parkour to me is less of a physical practice and more of an emotional social one. So that was always why for me I was like it doesn't really matter what the the actual movements are. It's that you're you're putting yourself in front of challenges that scare you on a regular basis, uh, and then being present to your emotional experience because. The physical is one element of it, but you can get yeah. the physical anywhere. That's not that's not what makes parkour special. It's not why you should try and give parkour a go. You should give parkour a go because of this yeah. other layer. I think that the emotional and social component of movement practice, whatever the movement practice is, is really primary. Mm -hmm. um, and I think parkour is really really powerful because it's a very um, it becomes very obvious within that. Yeah. It's and very some, easy to yeah. see immediately access. You, you can be great at something from an external perspective, and mm -hmm. if it doesn't mean anything to you internally, what's the value of it? Yeah, exactly. Whereas um, if you are profoundly happy from the value of your physical practice, does it matter if you win the gold medal or not? Yeah. Like what, what's really the thing that's going to sustain you over the long term in your sure. life? Like that's fundamentally, I think, the most important question people should be looking at in their physical yeah. practice. and. When people, um, there's an idea that I that I wanted to bring up that come from came from Georges Chabert, which is we should measure people in their practice not by how far they, by how high their achievement is, but by the gap between where they begin and where they can end. Like that a lot. And and so people often, you know, will see stuff that I can do, and say, oh, I can never achieve that. Yeah. And then and I think, well, that's not the point, is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, like. You may do a jump that, that, that you know, like maybe you feel like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not doing the jump the way that I should. Mm -hmm. But if that jump has a profound meaning for you and carries you through other things in your life, mm -hmm. then it's more valuable than the guy next to you who jumped five feet further and yeah. the jump didn't mean anything to him. That's hard to communicate. The thing is, it's really hard to communicate because uh, American society, and again, I can really only speak deeply to American society, yeah, yeah. Uh, very externally, like very externally, uh, what's it? Everyone's very, um, very much seeking out external validation all the time. Yeah. You know, we're driven by external validation. We're grown up in, you know, we grow up in school where other people are evaluating us and tell us what our worth is all the time through tests and exams, right? And, you know, um, I, I used to talk about my experience as a kid, it was a cr extremely competitive, you know, uh, from my schoolwork to like even community service, who could have the best gold award project as a Girl Scout, right? It's, this absurdity of competition that infiltrates every aspect of your life and you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and even as you grow older so many people in their communities are like okay competing to who gets married first who has the biggest house who has the best paying job it's it's constantly looking at other people to uh, value yourself and uh, I think it's really foreign when you get into spaces and something I talk about pertaining new students is you have to teach them how to like create an internal source of systems of validation, which means you have to probably start with some external validation. So this is something parkour shows with like, you need to have some ways that people can externally validate yeah. their experience while developing their skills of internal validation so that they can appreciate the practice. Because otherwise they're gonna keep looking at, I'm doing parkour to be better than this person, or I'm doing parkour to look cool, or I'm doing parkour mm -hmm. because, you know, until you give them a way to validate or understand or appreciate their experience for what it is, like give them an actual system or a tool yeah. or way, like, they're not going to. Cool. So this segues into two topics I really wanted to get into with you. One was, so we talked a lot about the, that parkour teaches you things that you can 
get out of the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. They will have improved you in the rest of your life. This has been a, a key sort of talking point of parkour since the very beginning. And it really, it's like you go to Taekwondo school, and they'll say the same thing. Sure, it's yeah, all yeah. The, the inner game of everything is is the point. Um, but I think that there's a, a trap that can happen where people can 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 overcome fear in this place mm -hmm. and feel like that's enough. Yeah. I and know. then avoid everything else. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm still scared to approach girls. Yeah, I'm still scared to talk to my boss. But hey, I'm fearless at jumping off things, yeah. and that's enough for me. How do, you, how do we, how do you, in your practice and in working with people, avoid that trap? Um, so one thing I used to do in my class when I used to teach, it's been a long time since I taught. I teach yeah. like from time to time workshops, but I let my coaches teach a lot now. Um, I really like giving students homework and like takeaway, but relevant, like relevant to their life. So like, okay, like. I want you to go and find a way to take a risk in a friendship. Like, so what's something you're scared about doing with one of your friends right now? Something you're not communicating or afraid to say or maybe afraid to do? Um, like, this week, reflect on that. Like, take, a minute, take time to meditate. I think, again, yeah. having that secondary practice that's not physical that accompanies your physical practice. Take time, meditate on this, and then do it. Like, take a risk and uh, fix a relationship. Reach out to someone. Communicate something that's making you uncomfortable. Um, but that's... I try to... As a coach, I feel it's my responsibility to help people make the bridge to mm -hmm. taking lessons from my practice into their real life. Yeah. Um, and that even myself, I have to remind myself sometimes, like, okay, this is just a challenge. How can I, how can I break it down to progressions? Like, if I want to, I want to make X amount of money, okay, this is an impossible challenge, but it becomes less possible now because I can say, okay, I can start here and do these 10 things. I know how to break a challenge down. I'm not going to, if I feel overwhelmed here, I can create. Uh, steps to get me there and understand my challenge, my, my emotions and experience. And but I have to have someone raise my consciousness to that level, like raise my attention to oh, like this is how I can use it here. Like yeah. I learned how to use math, but like I, I learned to do math, but until someone shows me like this is where you might apply it, like application, like tool and application, right? Like teach people how to apply it to their daily life through like I, I said homework, but that's yeah. my that's my sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I like. Um... I think there's always the question of how well benefits in one activity will transfer to something else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, the, one of the key lessons is you just have to be intentional. Yeah. You have to pay attention I to know. am I am <laughs> I doing that? Am I am I tr you know okay? Theoretically, parkour makes me courageous in the rest of my life, and I actually acting that out yeah. and actually trying to apply the same mindsets yeah. in my in my yeah. life that I apply in the parkour. I'm like taking my practice off the field and into, into reality. Yeah, so then the other aspect of that was you talked about this idea of people come in, in our culture, uh, highly kind of driven by external motivators. External motivators mm -hmm. are what we're, we're conditioned to kind of build our behavior off of from a very early yeah, age. Yeah, absolutely. And then ideally perhaps, the idea is that that parkour should be something that's driven by extra internal motivation, and that it, and then it's one of those places where you can, you, you can be driven by internal motivation. You can learn about your internal motivations. But then there's the problem of the segue, right? Mm -hmm. Like if someone comes in and 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 they're they're expecting somebody to say, you know, measure their waist every six weeks yeah. and mm -hmm. give them a gold star and. Do all do whatever they would do yeah. with a personal trainer or a CrossFit. You know, do they make the high board? Mm -hmm. Do they do all that stuff? Uh, how do you how do you 
how do you teach people to learn to become more in tune with that intrinsic motivation system? Sure. And particularly, I find this interesting because it feels like there's a huge culture gap between the people who start parkour on their own yeah. and the people who, who have a teacher. Because now you have an, an external source of validation. Yeah. So how do you how do you teach the culture of the, the early adopters, the, the, the self-starters in parkour, how do you get that to the people who, who come in from a more traditional sort of background and expectation? So I don't know if I have like a, a one fifth well, <laughs> right? But like one thing I think of immediately is um, it's really important to help people develop their, their solo practice, their independent practice, their personal practice. Um, you know, so much, I mean, school reflects this too. When you work with a mentor, it's you have your session with your mentor, but then you take and you have homework, you have things you take home that you work on your own time, you develop your personal practice. I think it's through personal practice that we begin to understand and develop our own intrinsic motivators, our, our measurements for success. Um, as a coach, again, I think it's important that through that transition space, you provide a mix of discussion and dialogue around building these in internal uh, motivating forces, but also at the same time providing a framework and a way for people to interface with what they already know, to retain them long enough to learn the longer lesson. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that's like, you know, I think maybe that's why karate works sometimes so well because there's so many belts. And then now even more so with a lot of the places like they have like little bands you get in your belts, which are even more like more much more like about improving retention, letting people stay long enough so they can learn the lessons that take a long time to learn. Yeah. Um, because you can't communicate and teach it right overnight. And I actually think that like society and being conditioned to rely on external motivators is a huge source of like depression and anxiety oh, for a yeah. lot of people and as they try to transition through like I think like the midlife crisis or the quarter life crisis is very much this like coming to like butt against like what your parents wanted for you or what society what you thought society wanted for you and then what you want for yourself mm -hmm. and trying to reconcile that somehow like even I felt that was like okay I'm leaving my job I'm leaving architecture like am I am I suddenly a failure now that I don't have like a super well-paying job and I'm going back to living with roommates and I'm you know, like something I'm changing my life upside down to thing that I really care about. I, I know what I love. I, I can see what I'm passionate about. I'm really excited to do it. But the the things I have to change is what I've been told I need to do to be successful. Yeah. Um, and that terrifies me. And I was so depressed in the period between going from what others wanted for me to what I want for myself. And what I want for myself is completely valid and will make me happy. And this won't. And that's like that. That's everyone in their life will have to eventually shift from external to internal. I mean, especially if they find that they, like, they find something they're very passionate about, it'll probably, like, come into conflict with some of your social conditioning and some of the uh, needs and wants from other people. And Yeah, that's, uh, there's this idea of individuation or the, the development of the, of the self, right? Uh, we were talking before, uh, before we got on camera about Joseph Campbell and, uh, and Jordan Peterson. Peterson talks about Pinocchio as this great archetypal story because... Uh, because you can imagine that everyone starts as a sort of marionette mm -hmm. that's where the, the strings are being pulled by um, by culture yeah which in in, uh, in no I love this I already know where you're going I love yeah. it I'm really excited about it <laughs> keep so, going so okay so Pinocchio let's say that that his strings are being pulled by culture which is represented positively by Geppetto mm -hmm. and um, and negatively by the coachman Right? Mm -hmm. there's, the, there's the tyrannical and the positive aspect of culture, and those are the strings that are pulling it. And then the other aspect of it is 
uh, nature, which is represented by the blue fairy, mm-hmm. and uh, and then maybe by the whale. And those are the other things that are pulling his strings. Yeah, yeah. And it's only through kind of experiencing all these things, yeah. and then going into the belly of the whale and saving yeah. his father that he's able to become an individuated self, something that doesn't have strings anymore, that can be self, yeah. self-guiding. And, and uh, I'm right in the middle of Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning book where he's talking about how we have to first sort of identify with a group and this is what happens in like a, a um, uh, like an initiation ritual yeah. in a mm-hmm. traditional culture. And it's only f- once we, we have that, like I am a parkour athlete, I am an yeah, architect, yeah. I am this, I am this My title, here's my title, I'm a yeah. sir. I'm not a... Yeah. It's only once we've got that that we can start kind of letting it go and yeah. individuating out and creating our own personal identity. This is something actually they taught me in architecture school very early on is they used to say when I was a freshman, you learn the rules of design and then you can break them. Exactly. But how can you break rules until you know what the rules are and you understand and are competent using them? Because then what you're doing is just chaos and it won't be meaningful to you. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, totally. I, I think it's, you have to grow up. And it's not, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think I wish there was a, a better tool for us as people. Even like, I was just talking about like, aside even from movement, just as people for us to be able to um, take the step away from what we've been told we want and into what we have found that we want for ourselves. Yeah. I think, you know, depression is so widespread and so many people struggle in their late 20s and go undergo these, like, they're not saying, like, like what, the quarter life, this person. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's such a product of so many more people not having access to other communities, access to, on, like, the online network has really helped, uh, I think, speed up the midlife crisis to be much more sooner <laughs> because of our ability to, to engage in a conversation with so many more diverse people that we become aware of all these other opportunities, all these other ways of being, and we're suddenly like, okay, like, this person's happy, and I was told that this was going to make someone happy. Like, I, I was, I was, I dated someone who uh, didn't graduate high school, and I remember when I first met him, just like, uh, this isn't going to work, like, <laughs> and then realizing that like, he was happy doing these things, I was like, okay, like, you can be successful and not go to high school and be really smart and do all these things, and I have this, like, this built-up understanding of what success is. And I think that that's really what you're, you're embedded with what an idea of success is instead of creating your own success, but helps you get to a certain point. I think the college system fucks us up because, like, yeah. you get too far along on your path, you've dumped a ton of money, and it's even harder now. Like, we're creating a thing, it's even harder to change to do what we want after you've dumped a quarter million dollars into our education. Yeah, so, no, I mean, the, I think that? the education, the, the, the collegiate system, <laughs> the idea that everyone should go to college is a really yeah. bad idea. And, um, man, the, the research shows that most people know absolutely nothing from their college experience. Like, right. most people don't, can't answer any more general knowledge questions after four years of college education. So we spend yeah. an enormous amount of money on this. And then, for almost any job, unless you're, like, pre-med or something like that, you. you don't, <laughs> everything you learn is, is re- irrelevant. You're probably useless. <laughs> That's what I tell people when I hire them, like, you're probably yeah. useless and one of the training. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> right, whatever. That's that's a, a, a very, <laughs> yeah, we can go. go. Yeah, that's yeah, a totally yeah. different tangent. Um, but it, it is relevant in a way because we're talking about how does the person educate themselves and become yeah become exactly. It's, it is on a micro scale, the macro yeah. thing we undergo. Like what we're trying to teach people how to build systems, and that's why I think also a lot of people who do do parkour and find movement undergo within a short period of time a lot of like deep personal change because yeah. the process of building uh, a practice of what self like. Uh, self-awareness, uh, questioning yourself all the time, questioning your surroundings, identifying why you're doing things, you get better at what you practice. So I do find a lot of people in parkour and in movement in general uh, tend to be 
very rapidly moving towards they they very quickly come to heads with their life. Yeah. I find a lot of people like try to find more and more ways to understand how their their social their conditioned life fits in with their their movement practice, and then questioning. A lot of people go through crises of yeah. person under one one in movement. I think. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a, <laughs> sort of a um, a catalyst for character change. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Something comes that's that is, is very different and outside of your experience and it shifts your internal emotional life in a really profound way and it makes yeah. you see everything in your life differently. So there's two way, what kind of places I wanted to go with you with that. Uh, I think we should kind of like uh, table for a second the hero's journey idea. Yeah, yeah, there's so much. That could just be its own like but evening. <laughs> there was, uh, I was listening to your uh, your interview with uh, Matt Myers from the Three Foot Guy yeah, podcast yeah, yeah. And, and you talked about not liking the game um, add on. Uh, for yeah. beginners, I love and the I, game add-on. First yeah, yeah. of all, <laughs> for beginners, not for beginners, yes. And and it, it tied into something we were talking about there, which is that is that too much freedom is overwhelming initially, mm -hmm. and so if you're constructing games and you want people to be able to, to play effectively, then you have to um, you have to be able to uh, give them sufficient constraints. For them to be able to start to map out the game in order to start playing, yeah. so I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you how you set up the constraints of your games, and then maybe some of your favorite games oh, to gosh. get people uh, started okay. moving in parkour. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so I think uh, to go back, we talk about new player, newcomers. Yeah. So, so I think a lot about the new person experience, as well, especially because a lot of my events are about attracting newcomers. My woman, the women's gathering, the women's meetups, beginner jams. These are the places I get to teach a lot now. So I'm always thinking about what they experience on an emotional spectrum. And uh, the context which I really got interested in games was under this idea of social risk. You know, yeah. every, everything you do in your life has some degree of social risk. Um, and for newcomers, you want their first experience to be has as little much ne negative emotion as possible so that they will affiliate positivity with movement. They'll come back. They'll stay. Um, so I don't like add-on. I love add-on. But yeah. I don't like add-on because... For newcomers, because you have no skills or tools to use to participate in this game. So add-ons, you know, one person add, starts with the move, another person adds one on, another person adds one before you have a line of movements, everyone's yeah. doing it. Um, if you're a newcomer, your experience is this is incredibly, like, social, like high social risk. I would evaluate yeah. this high social risk game, because now you have to put yourself out there. If you're with other people who have done this before, they know what they're doing, yeah, yeah. and you don't, and you're going to look potentially like an idiot if you do something stupid. And I've seen so many newcomers that be like, Deer in headlight. What do I do? How do I add on? Like I don't know. If it, and that, that that's a really negative experience. They're having like high levels of anxiety. They might they might not come back because of this being put on the spot. This moment here. Um, so I avoid games that put people on the spot to create. Uh, it wasn't like Edo Portal had like the three. Is it imitation yeah, uh, integration it's, it's, and uh, isolation integration oh, that's improvisation? Okay. So, yeah. So perfect. Exactly. I think that's very much tunes into like uh, improvisation is very much what add-on is about. You improv. You're able to use move or integrate. You, know, yeah. you have to have things to work with. So I always look for games that are for newcomers. I look for games that are uh, designed to lower social risk by introducing other people, uh, but doesn't require. And everyone's kind of on the same level doing the same thing necessarily. So. You know, and a lot of them, they're not even like very much, they might not look like games. Like I do quadrupedal and I'll have people partner up and like we'll go eye to eye doing quadrupedal. Or I'll put a ball between our two heads and now we have to cue them back and forth holding the ball together. So the task is to hold the ball, not to do the movement. Yeah. Um, 
so sometimes like I look for games that are less focused on uh, skill execution and more focused on like a social experience with the group. That makes sense. Another yeah. game I like is Steal the Bacon. Steal the Bacon. Yeah. So Tell you get like you you find a partner and then between you you put like a, a something in between you like a shoe or something and you you walk apart and you have have two teams right mm-hmm. and you have your partner and then uh, each round the the master of the game, he says, okay, you're going to quadrupedal and go, forward, you have to race to grab the thing in the middle and bring it back to your side before the other person does. And if the other person gets it, you try to tag them. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, again, it's not about the movement, it's about getting this thing yeah. and bringing it back. So I'm changing your focus so that, like, again, people come very, in when you're doing new things with your body, people become hyper aware of their body. One thing I get a lot from feedback for women, for example, um, this is my experience too as a woman, the first time I did quadrupedal, I was really uncomfortable because it's a sexualized position in society mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't want to be crawling around a bunch of men doing this. This is like, <laughs> but, but it's fine and you, you realize it's fine in the, in the community culture we're in, yeah. but like so many people have that experience every time they're crawling around, they're, they're hypercognizing of their body and it's like if I can change where their focus is, we'll have a much better experience and less, less emotionally intense to let them engage with others. And with yeah. Them. Something I've been thinking a lot about recently is, uh, attentional focus and how we can kind of uh, one of the most persistent problems that you see in kind of organizing someone's movement practice is that they're paying attention to the wrong things mm-hmm. so when we're the big problem that I notice is uh, when we're trying to teach someone mm-hmm. a lot of times we're we're interfacing with the external expression of their movement yeah. and then we're giving them a verbal feedback about what that external expression looks like and then asking them to control that and uh, and then we're often using words that are that are kind of like uh, well first of all like and I was a huge uh, kind of a huge I had a huge problem with this using very formal language Mm -hmm. right you know I want you to to squeeze your glutes I want you to externally rotate your Mm -hmm. your knees or whatever externally rotate your hips Um, all that stuff is is a it, it's not common, it's not words that people use all the time, so it communicates with kind of a, a very small part of your brain. Mm-hmm. So now you get them to basically like have too much attention and they get paralysis by analysis, they get stuck. Yeah, yeah. So what I like about those games you described right away is that you're, you're, you're getting a lot of, a lot of, um, you're avoiding a lot of hyper-attention to the action of what's happening in the body itself mm-hmm. by giving some external thing to pay attention to. Yeah, exactly. Or someone else to pay attention to, you know. Yeah. I, I really uh, partner games. I mean, I have that the game website that I have all those games on. Yeah. I'm trying to, I need to get like better at putting all the games. I have so many on, I just have yeah. like a, a starter set right now. But anything that you're working with someone else or again, you're working towards some goal that's not technically oriented, it's great mm-hmm. for it's great for newcomers. Um, I always, always tell people also avoid games that like, Avoid games and activities that demand physical performance. So yeah. if you have to shimmy across this wall mm-hmm. here, I assure you, there'll be a time you use that and someone's be very unhappy and yeah. like that that because you're requiring you're not giving an alternative or you're requiring them to do this performing to some level. Um, so think about progression within your activities as well. And I, I like your uh, your model of like controlling social risk. So yeah. and 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 then also I think that that idea of like. Where is the focus is a really key thing to think about in how you're, how you're designing the game. One of the things that I, I classically see within the parkour community is like you pick a series of movements and it's a difficult series of movements and then you look at it and you try to control everything in your head. Yeah. 
and you get that you get the people get stuck there yeah. they get stuck in the paralysis by analysis and then you see them run up and they're like like all yeah, the weird yeah. runners <laughs> so i've been big on using games and kind of ways to trigger people into the movement yeah. so they're not in that hyper analytical frame of mind before they start moving um to try and get them to learn to control it in a kind of a subcognitive way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that's a, a huge, a huge thing. And it's a really, it's a different thing from the way I think maybe most of the parkour instruction is happening. Yeah, well, I think it's very much, and even coming to PKV, it's very so much about, and I'm not, I can't speak too much to it, but, you know, a lot of the places I've visited, it's about, okay, we're going to learn how to jump today. We're going to learn how to balance it. We're executing this movement. And that, that also goes back to, like, the, the four types of uh, practitioners, right? You're appealing to athletes and to competitors and to exercisers, not to uh, socialize with enthusiasts. And I think, especially for newcomers, you want to create a more social experience for them because you want to be, again, net positive. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple last questions for you. Yeah. The last one I wanted to really get into is there's this sort of a theme within our conversation around the different types of motivation for practice, which is the, the enthusiast, the socializer, the exerciser and a competitor yeah, correct. and you're you're kind of advocating that people focus more on the first two and that maybe more of the just on socializing yeah. on the socializer <laughs> at least initially yeah, you're yeah. building your business and your practice and your brand i mean personally yeah and then um and as we were talking about that though i was thinking about some of the other things we were talking about earlier about uh you know jordan peterson and, and joseph campbell and this this idea of the hero's journey and and it seems to me that we're we're really uh, we're really storytelling creatures, mm -hmm. and our motivations are often about how well it fits the story that we're trying to tell about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, if you want to have a practice that is um, that is persistent over time, mm -hmm. how do you set up a story that is that continues to give you meaning? And then, if you want to kind of keep bringing people back. How do you uh, how do you give them that story that that sense of of continually kind of setting out on the journey and accomplishing something? I have so many things I want to say. I don't know which one to start with. One is uh, first of all, I think when you're building a, a community, you need rituals. Less yeah. of a story, more of rituals. Spaces in which you come together and feel like meaningful connection to your community. You can't just show up to class. There has to be a time that's like special that like acknowledges your role in your community um, or your progression in your community maybe that is like and again you can be done through challenge like challenge yeah. and competition that becomes a ritual for your community and that's like challenge nights. I like love challenges yeah. Africa you don't, you don't need to have a victor for challenge nights because challenges can still be a mm -hmm. form of competition personalized competition within yeah. the larger con context of community um, but the second thing I want to say and story conflicts a little bit with play because play is theoretically about purpose, right? You engage with play because you love it. And you, you do it because there's like, right, and I understand that we, we are we need motivation, but story is a form of motivation. Um, well, narrative play is, yeah. is a huge portion yeah, of play. Yeah, totally. When you, when you watch kids play, they're always telling a story. Like, kids rarely just jump because they want to jump. Yeah. Like, th in their minds, they're jumping because they're running away from a tiger, yeah. right? And everything. So the, the, the aspect of the story... Um, I don't think that that is so motivating yeah. for adults that are running sure, away from the tiger, yeah. but there still has to be this sense of, of a narrative that's meaningful for people over time. I think I think even socializers are still trying to get become more adept movers, yeah. uh, you know, uh, become more physically fit. People come to I think again university people come to parkour because 
the external appearance of what parkour is is this thing about physical fitness right mm-hmm. so i think people bring that anyways and it's just it's it's a little less obvious i think you have the four types of people who participate four major yeah. motivators and i think the strongest businesses the strongest communities uh find ways to integrate all these needs in the experience yeah. i'm just saying emphasize the social one and you need to have rituals you need to have you can have competition and this story of progression and you know one thing i want to do with parkour visions is this thing like challenge coins uh, where um, each of our coaches will design a challenge and they can like basically merit badges and you can go out and earn all the merit badges from the different coaches and they're rotating challenges. This is a way to uh, be- benchmark progress or feel a sense of achievement without needing to be a part of like a hierarchy system. Yeah. So can you create can you create moments of achievement and accomplishment without creating hierarchy? And that definitely works within a social a social environment that is positive and also creates a sense of like, also doesn't undermine uh, like creating a sense of equal value of each other. So mm-hmm. like that's also something I try to balance out with competition is my word with competition is it's it's return to hierarchy and it, it naturally leads to like I'm better than you and then that makes it hard to empathize and connect and uh, leads into like I think more disparate like more disconnected, disjointed communities versus one that's focused on how do we create a uh, system for accomplishment, measuring accomplishment that doesn't create hierarchy and do you think there's a way to do that? Sure. I mean, like, like I, I think the challenge coins is, is my current te- solution to test, right? Like, yeah. there, I can't say, like, here's the book on how to do it because everyone will be doing it. But yeah. I think that that's, like, my idea. Like, I like the idea of merit badges. It's badges. It's, like, pick and choose your flavor of what you're interested in. You, like, you're not showcasing anywhere, so you know you're progressing by achieving these things. But it's not about, like, saying I'm better than them or I have more badges than them. Looks kids it might be, but yeah, this is a I don't know. This is sort of a really interesting question for me personally right now yeah. because like I feel like I grew up in a community where hierarchy was like a bad word, and and there was me, like, well, me too. <laughs> well, I also I'll say that I still feel like the way it manifests is negative in a lot of places when you have like hierarchical yeah. systems. Like you need it in companies and businesses for things to run. I, I get it and the value of it, but I think a lot of times in communities I've seen it manifested very negatively where the leader becomes this thing you can't ever access. You have the really good athletes over here who never talk to the new athletes over here. And you have the group of weirdos who just do it because they're like doing it and like who knows who they are. And like, I just, at least like this clickiness of based on how well you can move and. Yeah. No, I, I totally understand that. I was just, I'm, I'm just thinking about this uh, because I, I'm, I happen to be thinking about hierarchy in general right now. And the idea that uh, one of the ideas that I've seen Jordan Pearson propose is basically, mm-hmm positive motivation tends to be about movement towards a goal. Mm -hmm. So in order for there to be a goal, you have to value where you're going over where you are. Sure, yeah. And so you, there, there's always a hierarchy of value. There's always a valuation Mm -hmm. system. Um, Intrinsic or extrinsic. And there's intrinsic versus extrinsic, yeah. Uh, So you always have to kind of have that. And, and there's a, and, and you need it. You need to have, I mean, the idea of a heroic, a heroic archetype is something that you are aimed at. It's something that you have to recognize that you don't currently yet yeah. manifest mm-hmm. so that you can you can be going in a direction that's meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems to me that that um, that hierarchy is necessary, but I agree with you that that there's ways in which hierarchy kind of manifests itself or that I've seen it manifest in the parkour community that become punishing. Or in the martial arts community too, yeah. right? It's like yeah. if um, it's like you, you when you start a practice, it's like you get excited because you get better. 
mm-hmm. right? And you, you move up the hierarchy. Yeah. And then there, there's going to come a point where it's like you kind of settle. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, I'm getting worse. <laughs> well, we like, all eventually. Like, I mean, when we get old. Yeah, yeah, I'm 36 years old. <laughs> and like I'm getting better personally. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a better athlete than I was a year ago yeah, or yeah. four years before that. But my relative rank as a parkour athlete is just going down and down and down because sure. the, the pool of talented kids who've been sure. doing it since they were 10 years old is just rising. I think, I think actually maybe the issue is when a hierarchy gets conflated with value as yeah. terms of your value as a person in our community, when that's conflated with your value as your hierarchy in terms of your movement or your skill or what you like, you know, theoretically in an organization, like we're all, uh, we're all humans as our due respect yeah. to have, have, there's a baseline, like, like we all respect you that we all try to accomplish the same goal. We all have mm-hmm. the same, whatever. Um, but like, I think in parkour a lot of times, again, the people at the top uh, get treated way, way differently than the people who are just starting, and then each like rung on the ladder. I don't know, like becomes very um, disconnected from the one above and below it. Like it's just, I just get a lot of. Sh- yeah, I just, yeah. No, this is uh, really interesting <laughs> to me because I like as you're telling me this, I'm thinking about a specific kind of leader in the parkour community who who I interacted with, who was very anti-hierarchical, right? And I've seen a number of these people. Mm-hmm. And, and and it felt like what weirdly happened was that it was like that anti-hierarchy became this very, this aloofness that nobody was able to access, yeah. which just became its own weird clickishness. Yeah. It's almost like making people wrong to some degree with yeah. saying, you know. Yeah, and then, then of course, if you were competitive, it was so looked down upon, and now you have this hierarchy mm-hmm. of, of non-competitiveness. And it seems to me that, like, obviously there's going to be somebody who's the most skilled person in, a, in any given group. Can you cultivate a a culture where the people who who have the most skill have an ethic of 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 giving back, yes. of being representations, of understanding that they're that they're inspiration? So rather than getting yeah, rid of the hierarchy and trying to ignore it, sure. how do you set the hierarchy up so the hierarchy um, creates value for everybody throughout the pyramid. Yeah, totally. I think maybe we were talking about two different things. Something about like my yeah. student motivators yeah. and like not creating hierarchy through student motivators because I think it's outside of a context that's healthy sometimes. Yeah. But within a community, I'm a really big leader. Like you need a leader in a community yeah. for a community to be healthy. Someone has to choose to step up and take responsibility and become the caretaker mm-hmm. or some group of people, right? Um, because someone has to make a decision. Someone has to set standards and be responsible. Um, but I think it's really important as as you have those hi- the forms of hierarchy, they make leadership accessible. Yeah. And like, there's a quote about how like great leaders uh, create more leaders. Yeah. I really, really believe in this, and um, something that I try to strive wherever I work, whatever I do, um, is train, invest in, and train, and work with all the people of all the levels below me and above me to like further the community as a whole. Yeah. So I think that's really what it is. It's like being. If you are, wherever you are in piece of the hierarchy, being open to working with and experiencing everybody. Like when you go to a jam or an event, like don't just go hang out with the people that you see as like equal to you. Like how can you find value training with and working with and interacting with someone who's, it's their first day versus someone who's working well beyond you. Like I remember the first time I trained with Max Henry, he was like, like way beyond where I was in terms of, and just social, social comfort. I was like, and then he just much more skillful at the time and, um, Really, we had, it's funny, I've told him this, like, I didn't really like him when I first met him, because we didn't interact at all, and he kind of ignored me, and then I wanted to interact with him, and I was just like, I have value as a person, like, play with me, and, 
that's the thing a lot. That's what that's where I see hierarchy as a negative. It's like when you just stay inside. Like if I'm not good enough or I'm not your lover, you're not yeah. interacting with me. And that's I think where my hesitation has always been. But if we can cultivate a culture where uh, people reach out and take responsibility for other people's experiences. You know, yeah. if you're in a community and you want a community, that means you also take responsibility for being a part of that community and the people in that community and how you show up and impact those people. So mm -hmm. you want to be there, also try to interact with everyone with you because they're trying yeah. to be a part of your community too. And yeah, there's a, I, um, uh, a friend of mine, Tom Wexler, who's a teacher, yeah. one of my uh, students. The archery. Yeah, uh, Tom, archery. archery. <laughs> uh, a student went, went to his workshop recently and, uh, and, and it, it, someone was asking, what did you learn from it? And he said, one of my favorite things that he said was that was how to be at a jam. And he, had a, he had a number of oh, things. Oh, I have so much to say on this, but yeah, go ahead. But his, his number <laughs> one thing was the jam is recognized that the jam isn't about you. Yeah. How do you contribute to the space of what's happening yeah. rather than rather than being focused on you? Oh, so good. That's really, really good. So how so how do how do you be at a jam? How should someone behave at a jam? What are, what are the things that make that community grow in a positive way? Yeah, I mean, I think the question whenever someone comes up to jam, like, why are you here? Like, yeah. what what like why would you train with this group of people instead of someone else? This is something mm -hmm. that used to bother me as a woman. This maybe interesting way to connect the gender thing is yeah. my experience as a woman when I was training early on was I got to a group of people but no one wanted to interact with me because I wasn't training at their level, um, and this was a huge like thing that put me off. And I've met a lot of women since then who come out to like the women's gathering and have these emotional experiences where they're like, wow, this is what it means to actually train with someone. Yeah. And there's this idea of training with someone and training next to someone. Yeah. And I think so many women have these experiences of training next to the group. Like we might all be working on this challenge. You're all doing the same thing, but I'm doing, I am have to do a modification. I have to do it slightly different. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you're all treating me different to somebody. Or you're having this this brotherhood bro -y thing going on yeah. and I don't, get a part I don't get to partake in that emotional experience. And that's what I want. I want to be friends with you. Let me be your friend. Versus that maybe something below you that you're mm -hmm. you're pitying or something. I don't know what the right word is, but um, why do people go out and train with other people? It's because they want to connect with other people, and that's why I say of the four types, it's the socializer we want to appeal to because parkour start started out in Jenny. We could have all yeah. just stayed on our own, trained our own, been solo forever, yeah, yeah. see each other every now and then to compete, but we don't. We choose to get together and jam. We choose to be social. We choose to be a part of a community. Um, so parkour is fundamentally social and. Being at a jam means like, yeah, you have your friends and your buddies, but if someone new shows up or uh, there's other groups there, you should be trying to make yourself available to their experiences. Because also, if you want to expand your your movement practice, you need to try to like consume as many perspectives as possible. My favorite thing to do at a jam is to go up to as many different people as possible and join in on their challenge. What are you working on? What are you working on? Can I do this with you? Because this is not something I would have created on my own. Yeah. Or together we can create something that I would never have created on my own. And that's why you train with other people is because it's going to like allow you to explore another level of your movement or your ability. See things um, in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I find like my motivation personally for, for training with other people is sort of twofold. One, it's like when I do something that I like, it's like I just want someone to share the experience. Like when okay. you eat something tasty <laughs> and you're like, try this brownie. It's amazing, right? Yeah, like yeah. I want that. Mm -hmm. And then also I want, um, I want to uh, I, I want to, to have something to emulate I want to have there's a there's an emotional resonance that happens when people are are, are operating at a similar skill level and, and kind of like the same challenges yeah totally but all of a sudden you like connect yeah and it's like well, you usual see problem and you solving get, absolutely and you get better faster yeah and that's really that's really motivational for me it, the benefits are the sharing mm-hmm 
and then the, the, the growth. I get better faster when I get to train with other people. I like those. And I, like, we ha I feel like, you know, the parkour community started with, like, a very communist sort of ethic here. <laughs> and it was all about giving and giving and giving. Yeah, yeah, very and much. Then, and then I was, I was always at a jam for everybody else. Yeah. And then I was teaching for everybody all, mm -hmm. else all the time. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I was just, like, I just was like, I need to, I, I need to do this jump because I, I want to jump for me. Well, this is actually, so this is why I really advocate for leadership. So this is why I say yeah. you have to have leaders. And whether the leadership changes from event to event or whatever it is, someone has to be there taking responsibility for the group. Like, someone yeah. has to come there and take responsibility for everyone's experience. It doesn't have to be everyone to, like, yeah, but there yeah. has to be someone who says, like, okay, today I'm in, I'll, I'll lead, and I'll yeah. make sure that everyone feels connected and involved. And then that enables you to, because I think what happens now is there's training sessions and there's jams and they yeah. become overlap. Training sessions are where you're maybe with like mutually skilled people trying to focus and like progress your skill. Where jams to me have always been these things where like meet, like historically it was like get as many people as possible who do this thing so I can meet them and not be by myself anymore. It didn't really yeah. matter how good you are because there's not enough of us. Um, yeah. And even on like national jams are still about getting lots of people together to meet each other. Um... So I think like when the two overlap, you just need someone who is going to be the leader, who's going to say, I'm going to take responsibility today for everyone's experience. Yeah. Um, you know, you should all at some level be just aware of how you impact the group and what you're doing, your behaviors. And if you're really putting someone off, like be aware of that. Like that's also a reflection on the community. Yeah. But uh, there should be, that's what leaders should do is take responsibility for the group and having several leaders. Like with the women's jam, we're doing a monthly women's meetup in Seattle and it's like, there's three or four of us, and each time someone else is going to be assigned. Or we switch off, we hand off. Like the first half, I'm in charge. The second half, Cordelia's in charge. And uh, when that swaps, like I can go off and do my own thing. I can go off and chain my jumps and do my things. And she becomes responsible for the newcomers and their experiences and making sure people are connecting. And yeah. Have you ever written an article about how to be at a jam? I should. You Actually, should I have, I have two that. articles right now I'm working on. So. Okay. Um, I don't want to use too much more of your time. I thought that was yeah, really yeah. cool, though. That, that last <laughs> bit was really interesting, and I think that people will get a lot out of it, and it's grounds for, for more interesting conversations going forward. The last thing I wanted to ask you is just yeah. a kind of a, um, uh -oh. a random question. It's like a, it's, it's a random close-up question, but it's particularly interesting because you come to my house and you get obsessed with my books. Yeah. So what, are, what are your... <laughs> no, don't ask me that book. Don't ask me that question. What are you about to ask me? Don't ask me it. Five uh. most important books for movement practitioners. Oh. That's terrible. <laughs> she was hiding her face. It's like the worst question ever. This is the worst question? Yeah, Why is it the worst question? It's just like, there are things that I think people should read, not because they're related to movement, because it'll make you better at communicating, or sure. it'll make you like, and that'll make you better at movement. Um, yeah. Well, There are things like, I like the power of myth, Joseph yeah. Campbell. Like I like this because I read it, I think about story, and story in terms of people's stories, and what they mm -hmm. bring to when they show. So all of my reading so much right now is about being a leader and and helping other people uh, connect with their movement and their bodies and and relate that experience to the rest of their life and so uh, needing to understand their stories is really important and how they create story and um, I mean I really like the book obviously played by Sue Brown I think yeah. that's a really just entry level like read it get like a new perspective on what this thing could be um, mm. <laughs> Can I just give you a list after? It's can I go home and think about it? <laughs> I don't think I can come up with five books on the okay. spot. Three books. Just the first three three books that come to mind. I'm just this is now a challenge for you. Oh god. Um I liked Deep Play by Diana Ackman. Okay, that's good. And uh 
I really want a communication book. I really feel like, or social, something on social intelligence, but I just, nothing is coming to my mind right now. I've done so much reading on, like, A, a book on social intelligence to be named later. To be named later. I'm sorry, that's <laughs> we'll sorry. We'll put it in the show notes. This is like, that, I knew, like, as soon as it says, like, this is, this is a terrible question to ask. I'm sorry. You should have told me beforehand. I could have told prepared. Sorry. Um, um, I like, yeah, I I like conversations to be very organic, so. <sighs> Um, but I'll come to me before we finish. I'll okay, cool. Last question then. Um, so your uh, Parkour Visions is your primary organization right now. Oh, Love Where You Live. That's not really about movement practice. Love Where You Live uh, by Pia Kagayama. Okay. It's about design and play in the physical world. Okay, And cool. uh, creating invitations for play. This was super informative yeah. to me learning how to um, think about uh, creating space but also creating events and experiences for people that want to engage. So, so many people go through their lives like because we don't have a lot of movement in our everyday life outside of anything we choose optionally to engage in um, and we're we're, de we're conditioned out of play like you know quit playing around grow up cut it out um, even if you were to put a playground in an office with adults most people will not play on it because they need permission or an yeah. invitation to play and invitation is all about invitation to play how do we create invitations for play to get people excited and do other things and one thing I always reference in a lot of podcasts I've done uh, or other things I've done, uh, not podcasts, I thought, but uh, is this story of the Mice on Main, which was this sculptural project where this kid put like these tiny little mice that are like kind of this big uh, in 12 different locations around Main Street in North Carolina. And uh, they're like, some are down low and some are up high. And when you go out, people are, like, it's a big thing for the town now. They, they, they're like, spent like $1,000 in this thing, but it's super like, like big now, this own line of like merchandise, whatever, but you go there and you go hunting for them. And what you see is like people like getting down low and squatting and looking up high and like people mm -hmm. are moving and they're invited to laugh and play just through this like little piece of paper that they're handed like, hey, go find these mice. Yeah. Like how do you invite people and like how do you create the equivalent in parkour, any experience or any event that invites and give people permission to play who otherwise wouldn't. The onlooker to the event that like is curious or like, it's like, no, no, I haven't been, it's really fun to watch, but like I'm not athletic. Here's my story. Like, yeah, that's interesting. That's I think interesting. my wife would be really interested in that. She likes to toy bomb. She makes little vignettes with small toys and puts them out uh, out around the city. I love it. Exactly. Um, it's so great. So, so play by Stuart Brown, D play by Diane, Diane Ackerman. Ackerman. Yeah. And what was the last uh, one? Love Where You love Live, where you live. Yeah, by Peter Kageyama. Peter Kageyama. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Those he are great recommendations. You should hire me to advocate for his books. I do okay. <laughs> and then the last That's question right. is, um, if people are, are looking to learn more about you and interact with your work more, uh, where the, where should they find you? Cool, uh, KaylinFontrella.com. There you go. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I and, lost it there. So. And do you have any big events coming up that people should know about? Uh, yeah, I do. I have the North American Women's Gathering for women who are interested in parkour or general movement practice. That's going to happen in Vancouver this year, the last okay. weekend of July. And the other one that I'm really excited about is the Art of Retreat, as we talked about earlier, which is leadership education uh, conference for parkour and its related practices. Um, and it's it's a really cool weekend long event. Uh, we're gonna do it in a camp this year, cabins, and uh, we have 16 talks across all elements of coaching practice and designing space and business operations and community development. So it's it's really cool. It's limited to 100 people, so you have to apply to attend, apply to speak, apply to teach, um, and we try we try to bring a diverse group of people in who can be peers to another, have really productive conversations. The format for our talks are like. Uh, you, have the present, you have the presentation and then like 20, 30, 40 minutes plus to have a conversation with your tiny group around it. And it's 
just a really, again, uh, it's my personal favorite event. It changes every year. It's, it's also a huge social experiment of how to like, how to create an inclusive community, how to teach people how to communicate, um, and how to communicate with people with very different ideas with you. And that's also very good for our community. Um, but it's, uh, I think if people come with open minds and it's an intent to listen and, uh, and learn, that uh, it becomes a net, net positive, net positive experience, I hope. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's Catch always a pleasure. Soon. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.